Good afternoon. It is Monday, the 24th of October 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border, and uh, Mark Anderson, who will be joining us from the USA. Uh, David, let's get straight on with the uh, political pantomime in uh, Westminster. Yes, Mike, it's Groundhog Day again. And uh, here we are, we're now down to two again. And it's uh, it's uh, Brian's favourite for the post, Rishi Sunak, and mine, Penny Mordant, uh, Mike's, Mike's favourite having won the last time round. So at least we're managing to pick the top three. So this is this says something about us. Um, and half of all the PA, uh, half of all the, the um, uh, MPs are supporting Rishi. They're ready for Rishi. Uh, but Penny Mordaunt, knowing the level of support Rishi has in the Conservative Party, uh, is determined to take it to a vote. So we will see. Yes, we use the term favourite very carefully because none of them are our favourites, David. <laughs> well, yes. when I say favourite, I mean the one we expected to win as opposed to the one we wanted to win. Yeah, favourite favourite in the betting sense, Brian. Uh, well, OK, yes, I'm very happy favorite. with that because I, I did pick Mr Rishi Sunak. So we will see. Um, we'll so, see. Uh, anyway, David, we have the we have the BBC here. Uh, half of all Tories uh, uh, supporting Sunak. Uh, what's the Telegraph got to say? Well, Telegraph has got a, a, actually a much more interesting piece than the actual news. They're reflecting on what the, what uh, Liz Truss did to the free market cause. So this is uh, Janet Daly in a in a uh, opinion piece. Um, she says. Um, uh, Trust has proved to be all too willing to abandon the free market cause, and that, you know, that was certainly the case. None of this is edifying and honest. Nobody is being truthful about the economic lie we have been perpetrating since 2008. And this is the elephant in the room. This, she's absolutely right in this. No one in, in mainstream politics is mentioning the reality of the situation at all. And she goes on to uh, critique uh, Trust's performance. She needed to say something different she needed to say it differently. She didn't. Why on earth can't she get past I'm sorry and make it clear that her original proposals in the mini-budget were a sincere attempt at a solution to the problem that threatens to undermine almost all of the G7 economies? And this was one of the strangest things because having come up with half of a free market policy, the other half was obviously cutting the state and she wouldn't go there because politics. But having come up with half of a free market policy, she never tried to explain it, defend it, justify it, anything. There was no substance to her at all. Um, uh, Janet Daly continues in the Telegraph, it's too late for that now. She's effectively disowned her own position and thus her own motives and reversed even the moves uh, like the abandonment of the Ryzen Corporation tax, which were not only sensible but uh, critical to economic recovery. None of this is edifying and honest. She, will cert um, she certainly still understands that higher interest rates are not only inevitable but even desirable. And so does the leader of the opposition. Nobody has been truthful about the depth and the breadth of this crisis, which is common to all the Western nations who have been perpetrating an economic lie since 2008. This is a critical thing. This is what's not been discussed in any branch of, of British politics or indeed Western politics. No one's speaking the truth about the real nature of the economic crisis we're facing. Not in the mainstream. Uh, you have to look for this to people outside the mainstream. And we have an example here from gold money, uh, Alistair McLeod, who's a free market economist and obviously a gold bug. He works for gold money. 
Um, <clears throat> so he, he comments here, the British government's desperate dash towards free markets has failed, badly bungled. The establishment in Whitehall and Westminster is back, realigned with international government consensus. The socialist wealth redistributors, the interventionists, the anti-Brexit Remainers now formulate government policy in Britain, free markets are dead. Uh, and he goes on to comment about Kwasi Kertang being replaced by uh, Jeremy Hunt, an establishment man, safe pay to hands, um, set to guarantee the authority of the state over its electors. The underlying problem that the electorate can no longer afford its government, again, this is getting to the truth of the matter, is lost in the noise. And then he gives an obituary for free markets. He writes, after a long illness, the death last Friday of free markets was announced in London. Market freedom has been increasingly suppressed since the First World War. In its comatose state, the last flicker of life was extinguished by the sacking of British Chancellor uh, Kwasi Kertang and the reversal of bungled policies designed to liberate the British economy from, from increasing state control. Uh, the Prime Minister he was writing before she went might be ousted as well, possibly, possibly even before the ink dries in this article. He was correct in that. This sad outcome is enough to turn frustrated libertarians into anarchists wishing for, for a collapse of the whole rotten system, the sooner the better. Fortunately or unfortunately, the increasing progression of status control and suppression of free markets has nearly run its course. A financial, a financial crisis of humongous proportions is lurking in the wings, which in this analyst's opinion has a fair chance of whipping out all rapacious states' income entirely by collapsing the fiat currencies. Uh, for with their authoritarianism, they have bred economic catalytic, uh, catalactic ignorance, which will certainly lead to their destruction. And this is the other point before we leave this, this, this subject, that the nature of the coming economic implosion is built into the system. It's an inevitable consequence of the policies that have been followed all across the West, in all the central banks, in all the seats of government, it's built in. So when it happens, it's not going to be some Machiavellian um, plan by one or two of an elite to collapse the economy so they can gather all the, the goodies, although there might be elements of that happening at the same time. It's actually already baked into the system because of the mistakes that have already been made. And it's now just working out the inevitable failure of a system which is in fact doomed. Uh, David, I don't know what you're worried about because uh, central banks are sitting there with their digital currencies waiting in the wings. They're going to save us. <laughs> well, this is something else to worry about. It's the saving that might be uh, the problem. Uh, central bank digital currency, of course, is an even bigger attack on individual freedom and even more control for the state. So um, more, of, more of what has ailed us would appear to be the solution. Uh, what's that called? Hair of the dog? Uh, possibly, possibly. But anyway, uh, let's look at what the BBC was, was saying this morning, because apparently the pound has gained on Rishi Sunak, uh, the fact that he's leading the race to become prime minister. Uh, and uh, that's very exciting. So let's just look and see how the pound has gained this morning. Uh, David, that's uh, looking back uh, from basically 12 months or so. So uh, can you see uh, any sign of the pound gaining there? close to the screen just about and thank you for putting that up because I had a pound chart against the dollar which was incorrect a week ago many apologies for that uh, it's good to put the right one up there that uh, yeah well it's I suppose if you zoom in you might be able to you might be able to see an uptick but it's well 
shall we say, rather modest. Well, when I took the screenshot, it was 0.28%. Uh, so anyway, what was Moody's? <laughs> yes, what was Moody's uh, view of this on Friday? Let's uh, look and see what they're saying. Moody's Investor Services has today changed the outlook for the government of the United Kingdom ratings to negative uh, from stable and affirmed that domestic and foreign currency long-term issuer and domestic currency seniors unsecured ratings at AA3. So we've been deep downgraded, but not just the country, also the Bank of England. Uh, the outlook on the Bank of England's ratings has also changed to negative uh, and so on. And they said uh, this was the key po point. The change in outlook to negative from stable is driven by, first of all, heightened unpredictability in policy making, and secondly, a risk of a sustained weakening in policy credibility. Uh, that shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone, David, uh, because frankly, everything that's happened in the last four to five weeks uh, undermines any credibility that, uh, well, not that we ever thought there was any, but the markets clearly did to some degree. And what what are Moody's actually announcing there? That the economic outlook for the country is not based on fundamentals, it's not based on the nature of the economy, the capital structure, the industriousness of the people. No, it's only based on policy and how that policy is perceived. It's all smoke and mirrors. There's nothing real anymore. Indeed. Now, yesterday on the Laura Kunzberg programme, uh, Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, was uh, being interviewed. Let's just have a brief look at what he had to say. Uh, he said, public expenditure isn't going down. If anything, it will go up. Therefore, taxes will have to rise to fill the gap, which is there at present. Uh, that doesn't make a very happy picture for the next few years. Uh, but what we need is a government that will actually tell us honestly there's a reduction in our national standard of living because we've decided to help Ukraine. Uh, and confront Russia. And that means that all of us are going to have to share the burden. Uh, we can't just put all of it on our children and our grandchildren. Uh, and he went on to say that the challenge is if we want European levels of welfare payments and public spending, you cannot finance that with American levels of tax rates. Uh, so we may need to confront the need to have significantly higher taxes on the average person. Uh, but then he went on to say this, David, uh, engaging in quantitative easing in 2009 was to stop the economy from going into another recession uh, because the amount of money uh, because the amount of money in the economy was going down. Uh, here in the last couple of years, the amount of money in the economy has grown very rapidly and at a pace that was bound to lead to higher inflation. So uh, for the first time, I think on a mainstream news program or uh, interview program, we've had a mainstream uh, economist in inverted commas almost hinting at the truth. Yes, I mean, uh, Mervyn King's by no means the worst that's ever run the Bank of England. There's more, more truth has come out of him than, than really any of them recent years. Um, and what, there are some things he's not saying. Higher taxes reduce freedom, for example. Uh, higher taxes, the power to tax is the power to destroy. Higher taxes will mean slower growth and a poorer nation overall. So that's a bit of an issue. And and don't you just love the naivety of Mervyn King, though, that, that, that somebody in, a, in British politics is going to go to the public and say, see all those tax cuts, see all those benefits, see all those free things, uh, your free NHS, your free prescriptions, all of this. We're, we're going to have to cancel all of that because the Ukrainians need our money. Yeah, that's going to happen. Uh, my comment on this is, of course, that what, what we really need to happen is for the public to be able to see the minutes of all the meetings and discussions that are going on, because we have no idea between the Bank of England, the Treasury, the government, Bank of International Settlements and anybody else with a finger in the pie, 
who is actually making the policy. So one minute we're talking about government policy, but uh, it appears to me that if we look at the circle of activity, you cannot tell what is government policy and what is bank-induced policy. Yeah, David. Just very quickly, um, the, the, the uh, American level of taxation, in the Taxation Competitiveness Index, the uh, um, United States is sitting at 22, we're at 26, Germany's at 14, Sweden's at 12, uh, Turkey's at 9, Hungary's at 7, uh, Czech Republic's 5, and Estonia's number 1. So Mer uh, uh, Mervyn King's suggestion that the comparison is Europe v America between uh, high and low taxes, that's not true. No, indeed. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share any material you find on the various platforms. Now, let's uh, move quickly on to uh, Ukraine. Well, not so much Ukraine, but uh, I suppose the UK and other uh, nations. But uh, Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, uh, was very much keen to speak to several people around the world, and Ben Wallace was one of them. Uh, and, uh, well, he was basically saying this, trustworthy sources in different countries allege that Ukraine uh, is preparing a provocation on the territory of their country related to the detonation of a so-called dirty bomb. Now, this is quite interesting because in the uh, press release that the Ministry of Defence issued, there was no mention of a dirty bomb. So let's see what... Uh, uh, ben Wallace's uh, comments on this were, here we go, at the request of the Ministry of Defence, I spoke with my Russian counterpart, uh, Sergei Shoigu, this afternoon, that was yesterday afternoon. Minister Shoigu uh, alleged that Ukraine was planning actions facilitated by Western countries, including the UK, to escalate the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, so no mention of a dirty bomb there, Brian. <laughs> well, no, but of course, what are we doing on a full-time basis, which is helping to escalate the war? Uh, absolutely. He went on to say this. Uh, I refuted those claims and cautioned that such allegations should not be used as a pretext for greater escalation. It is for Ukraine and Russia to seek resolution of the war, and the UK stands ready to assist. Now, honestly, uh, when, the, when you use the word lies with politician, most people you know, assume that, that they are synonymous. And this is one example of it, because, of course, the UK is not only not ready to assist a resolution to the war uh, in terms of negotiations, but has actively uh, acted mm. to prevent those negotiations taking place. Uh, that was followed up then with a statement from the so-called uh, P3. This is the United States, UK and France. Uh, we, the foreign ministers of France, the United Kingdom, and the United States uh, reiterate our steadfast support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity in the face of Russia's ongoing aggression. We remain committed to continue supporting Ukraine's efforts to defend its territory for as long as it takes. No mention, therefore, of any efforts to start negotiations at all. This is about supporting well, Ukraine's efforts. Well, we've got more billions, haven't we, pledged by the US and the EU and indeed UK to uh, put the weapons and munitions in. So. Everything is about stoking up Ukraine. It's not about calming it down and getting a peaceful resolution. Indeed, the statement went on. Earlier today, the defence ministers of each of our countries spoke to Russian Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu at his request. Our countries made clear that we all reject Russian's transparently false allegations that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb on its own territory. Uh, the world would see through any attempt to use this allegation as a pretext for escalation. We further reject uh, any pretext pretext for escalation by Russia. 
uh, the foreign ministers also discussed their shared determination to continue supporting Ukraine and the Ukrainian people with security, economic and humanitarian assistance in the face of President Putin's brutal war of aggression. But again, no mention of assisting with encouraging uh, any kind of negotiated settlement. No, because they, they don't want it is the answer. They don't want it. And obviously we've got to take note of the fact that the billions pouring into Ukraine without any any pretense on audited accounts um, means that we are going to suffer at home ultimately, which is what, what the bank's now starting to talk about. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, I want to just talk about a little bit of fake news. Uh, now, this was the sun a couple of days ago. Oink, oink, boom. Putin may have used pig drones packed with explosives to blow up Nord Stream gas pipeline and bond style plot. Uh, this is a reference to uh, a sort of remote uh, vehicle that goes up the inside of the uh, pipelines. Uh, anybody that's seen James Bond films will know what we're talking about. Um, and uh, they're claiming that Putin will have used these to, to blow up the Nord Stream. However, uh, this article appeared a couple of days ago uh, in a publication called BNE Intellinews. Now, we'll talk about who's behind this publication in a minute. Uh, but this was the headline, Explosive Laden Drone Found Near Nord Stream Pipeline. Uh, and this is what it said. Swedish authorities investigating the explosion that ripped holes in the Nord Stream gas pipeline reported on October 20th that found an explosive-laden drone on the seabed near the pipelines. The Swedish armed forces were called in to remove and disarm the drone. Uh, the drone was found near one of two strands of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline during a routine survey operation as part of the annual integrity assess assessment of the Nord Stream Pipeline Pipeline Journal reports. Uh, except, unfortunately, Pipeline Journal reported that in 2015. And so this had nothing whatever to do with the um, blowing up of the Nord Stream pipelines. So if we look at the date on that, Friday the uh, 13th of the 11th, 2015, and this article says, ruling out sabotage, the uh, Swedish military has successfully cleared a remote operated vehicle rigged with explosives found near line two of the Nord Stream natural gas offshore pipeline system. Um, and they ruled out sabotage because they, it was basically a NATO or, a, well, a NATO country's drone. I believe it was a Swedish drone. Uh, and they had lost it and they found it again, as you do, you know. So uh, anyway, if, when we go back to the uh, in, the IntelliNews article, it said this. It ended their article with this. The national identity of the drone has not been verified so far as many countries use unmanned underwater vehicles of similar construction. Stolpe said, who's the uh, Swedish uh, uh, spokesperson. And then if we go back to the 2015 article, it says the national identity of the drone was not verified so far as many countries use unmanned underwater vehicles of similar construction, Stolpe said. So this is clearly uh, fake news being pushed out by a mainstream uh, outlet. And let's just have a look at who the main editor is in this uh, BNE IntelliNews uh, website. Uh, among This is uh, Ben Aris, among the longest serving foreign correspondents in Eastern Europe. Ben Aris has been covering Russia since 1993 with stints in the Baltics and Central Asia. He co-founded BNE as a former Moscow bureau chief for the Daily Telegraph and was a contributing editor at The Banker and Euromoney for a decade, amongst writing for many other publications. He's also a professional photographer. So uh, I don't really know what's going on here, Div uh, David and Brian, but, but uh, quite, I think quite an incredible 
uh, piece of fake news being pushed out by a mainstream outlet. Well, and, and our governments are supporting this type of, of uh, thing. And in, in a minute, Mark Anderson will be joining us to talk a little bit about how children are being taught to identify fake news. And one of the things that they're told is to uh, check if some old story is being maliciously used in order to get an agenda across. But of course, governments are backing this. Let's just pop up on screen uh, the Daily Mail, because uh, I had to do a double take on this one, because uh, here was uh, uh, the Mail Online, 24th of October 2022, trending Russia-Ukraine conflict news. And there was Ben Wallace denies Russia's dirty bomb theories of false flag attack. And there's a picture of uh, Ben Wallace with Shoyo. Now, I was very interested to uh, see what this was actually about. Let's just blow the picture up so you can see it. And what is the headline from the Daily Mail? Russia and British defence ministers discuss Ukraine on phone call. Watch the full video. But the full video is nothing to do with the actual phone call. So let's play the video because I think it's worth looking at. It's so appalling for a number of reasons. But just bear in mind, this is the video which, according to the Daily Mail, is to do with a phone call. So we've got a number of interesting things happening. We think that video clip is from February or thereabouts. Um, notice that there's no subtitling, so we can't hear what the Russian uh, point of view is. We can only hear the English when Ben Wallace starts talking. So that is gross manipulation of the particular video clip. And then it, it transforms into a, uh, a text on screen, which is back on the subject of the phone call. So... David, I don't know what your take on this is, but what is the Daily Mail doing here? It's either gross incompetence or it's deliberate propaganda and manipulation of the public mind by conflating what are effectively two different episodes in discussions with the Russians. Yeah, but to what end? I mean, that didn't even seem to have much of a point to it. Okay, met you know they had a they had a, a meeting at some point, some somewhere. And what's what's the what's the effect of trying to get there? I I'm not even sure what the point of that is. No, well, uh, all I could guess is that they're trying to perhaps uh, make it appear that there's been such uh, progress on the western side that the the Russians were sitting down again. But I do not know. I just find it highly manipulative. 
And perhaps that's uh, an ideal opportunity to uh, to bring uh, Mark Anderson in with us because Mark, you've been looking at uh, how the Canadians at least have been dealing with uh, misinformation and disinformation for uh, school children. So we've got two clips here. Would you like me to kick off and just play a bit from both the two clips and then we can discuss what you're seeing? Let's do sure. that. Clip one. Did you know the Prime Minister of Canada has a pet alien? I read it online, and I even saw a photo. A photo! It must be true, right? Wrong. Turns out, sometimes the news you find on the internet isn't real. It's what we call fake news. Sometimes the story starts as a joke, and then somebody takes it seriously, and it spreads. But why would anybody waste their time inventing a fake news story? It's clickbait. The more people click on an interesting sounding story, the more people will see the ads on that webpage. And that equals money. And sometimes people just want to spread their own ideas or beliefs without backing them up with any facts at all. Vote for me and I'll turn all rivers into ice cream by 2020. That's a promise. You mean that's not true? I read that one online like a week ago. Aw, I love ice cream. So, how can you tell if a news story is fake? I know this one. Watch out for no eyewitnesses or quotes and phony experts in a story. Pictures that might have been photoshopped. Headlines written in capital letters with lots of exclamation points. Yep, that's right. Those things are all good indicators that the story you're reading is fake. Here's a few more. Lots of pop-ups and banner ads. Lots of broken links. No author's name and incomplete information in the About Us section of the website. Also, check the date the story was written. Is this just an old story that's been recycled? Are any other major websites reporting the same thing? If not, the story probably isn't real. And check the website address. Fake URLs usually try to copy real websites, often by adding unnecessary words and domains. A basic rule of thumb? If you aren't sure that a story is real, don't share it. Hey, look, the banana company is giving away free bee phones. All I have to do is share this article with 500 of my friends and I can get a free... Oh, right. <sighs> Fake news. Well, uh, Mike, what came into your head as you watched that uh, tremendous video for children? Well, I thought the very beginning was very interesting because clearly uh, the alien that was on... Uh, my, um, What's his name? Trudeau. Trudeau, That's thank Trudeau. you. Yes, yes. You see, it's eminently forgettable uh, on his shoulder. That was clearly Caroni, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting here is if you look at it through a journalistic lens, uh, first of all, set the table a bit. CBC Kids News produced this and another video I think that we'll be looking at. And CBC has had kids programming for quite a long time, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. That's the equivalent of the BBC in the UK. And so this is the newest thing among the CBC kids programming. And there's similar things going on in the States. And I thought I heard wind of it over on your side of the pond. <clears throat> that being said, if you look at it through a journalistic lens, for example, they were very clear. I read it online. I, if something you find on the internet isn't real, some, you know, sometimes news you find on the internet isn't real, quote unquote. So the clear implication there is 
only the internet can have propaganda or false or fake news. It's implying that what's on television generally could not have that. So they're, they're trying to demonize in general the internet and say, any news you find there is far more suspect than what you would find elsewhere in, in other mediums. And then they say things like phony experts. Well, define the word phony. Look, look at what happened during COVID, right? Um, there's lots of experts that were ignored by the mass media cartel that had plenty of solid data about the COVID jabs and how dangerous they, they continue to be. Uh, Peter McCullough, who I covered myself in Berrien Springs, Michigan near here, he's one of them out of Texas. So whose experts are we talking about, right? In other words, if they're on TV with the CBC, they're real experts. And if they're on the internet, generally speaking, they may not be experts and may be phony. So they're making all these false dichotomies and overgeneralizations that are going on. Now, that's the main thing that jumps out in that particular video. And then the other comment, if you see headlines in all capital letters, that, that has nothing to do with whether an article is true or false. It's a little bit of a stylistic thing. It's, it's a little bit of a deviation from the norm in terms of headline style. And exclamation points, yeah, that would be a little fishy, but you don't see a lot of stories with, you know, prodigious exclamation points. So that, that's really kind of a, a non-issue there. And they talk about no author's name. Well, look at what we just saw with uh, Ben Wallace. Not only was there, you know, you know, we knew who produced the video, but there was literally no point to it at all. And so, you know, what these kids are being taught is is pretty misleading in, in those ways and other ways. Yeah, Mark, let's just have a little look at part of your, the second of these two videos. You you actually said this one was your favorite. I think I understand why, but let's watch a little bit of this, which is pure programming of children's minds. Can you trust the news? in three minutes or less. Fake news isn't exactly a new thing. You know, kids, back in my day, I had to walk uphill both ways to school. It's just that these days, it's way too easy to design fake photos, videos, and articles that look like the real thing when they really aren't. So it's smart to be skeptical. Hmm. Something fishy is going on here. Sometimes false information is spread on purpose to trick people. Other times it's shared by people who don't even realize it's fake. Either way, here are some tricks for identifying fake news. Run the story through a fact-checking website. Look to see if other news outlets are reporting the same thing. And do a search to find out more about the organization that published the piece. Does it have a goal that might influence what it does or doesn't tell you? Does it have a good track record? Well, there we are. No problem. Use a fact checker and all your worries are over. Yes. Yeah. What's interesting there is, like you just say, it, it says, you know, go to a fact checking website. Well, you know, the Washington Post is known for doing so-called fact checking and it's very fact challenged and it's all based on ideology. There was something there also, do the news organizations have a goal? Now this is where it gets interesting. Now, if you have advocacy journalism, let's say you have a Catholic newspaper, you know that it has a Catholic perspective. So you read it with that in mind. Uh, 
American Free Press has a disclaimer and in its masthead that uh, we don't try to give both sides of the story because you hear only one side from the mass media. So we try to give the other side and we're opposed to the New World Order. That's been AFP's credo and it's clearly printed. Now the BBC and ABC, MSNBC have an obvious internationalist, transnationalist, globalist bias, but they don't state it. See, so they, they come off like they're neutral and then they get to have licensing to broadcast their news over the air, which the rest of us don't have, which gives them a very uh, powerful message in terms of distribution and dissemination. So um, when you go to the mass media cartel and their outlets, they're hiding their agenda. They're acting like they don't have one and that they're, and they're posing as neutral so they can get the royal treatment in terms of dissemination. See, so yes, you could check news organizations and see if they have a goal, but as long as a news organization is fairly upfront about what it believes and if it has any advocacy, if it has any certain goals, I don't think that's really a problem. You just have to look at the news through that lens. The real problem, again, is the big mass media outlets that have a goal, have an agenda, but hide it. And that's what these kids are not being taught. Yeah, Mark, thank you. Now, what about this headline, CBC Kids News, did the government go too far to end the trucker protest in Ottawa? Well, this is actually a bit of good news. Uh, perhaps these kids aren't totally brainwashed yet. This is actually a fair article off CBC Kids News. So while they're teaching these kids some pretty skewed ideas on how to judge what's true and false in the news, as we've already seen, on the other hand, to be fair, this article is very neutral and very balanced, and it asks all the questions. A law called the Emergency Emergencies Act was used for the first time ever in Canada in February 2022 to put an end to the trucker convoy anti-COVID protest in Ottawa, Canada, the national capital. At the time, Prime Minister Trudeau said it was necessary. Others said it went too far. And the article goes on to explore the overall issue in a fair and balanced manner. And then it talks about um, that there is a uh, inquiry going on called the Public Order Emergency Commission. And Justice Paul Rouleau, R-O-U-L-E-A-U, is conducting or overseeing this Public Order Emergency Commission. And by February of 2023, this commission is supposed to have recommendations and findings over whether it was proper and fair for Trudeau for the first time ever in Canada to invoke the Emergencies Act. So the kids did do some decent work here. So all is not lost is what that's saying. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, well, I'd look at the next headline, Chicago Council on Global Affairs, a survey of public opinion on foreign policy. And I know what's coming up after this, which is to do with where trust is, but what are you seeing here? Why do we need a survey on public opinion of US foreign policy? Well, it's helpful to understand what the Chicago Council is, of course. The Chicago Council on Global Affairs is the former Chicago CFR. They changed their name about 15 or so years ago. The CFR, the original one in New York, was founded in uh, 1921. The Chicago branch, if you will, sort of a sibling, was founded one year later in 1922. So this year is the centennial of the CCGA. But since 1974, they've been doing these public opinion surveys, but that kind of papers over the basic function of these think tanks. 
and that is to inculcate and promote the idea of non-isolationism, to promote the idea of foreign adventurism, of internationalism, and so on. They don't just take impartial surveys, though, to be fair, their surveys are, I think, reasonably accurate. Uh, these are not stupid people. They're, they're, they've got a lot of bright people on their staff that do pretty good work, but it's all oriented toward the original goals of these organizations. So the, the survey has to be looked at a little bit carefully. Like I say, they, they're, they're posing like they're neutral. They'll say they're nonpartisan, but by nonpartisan, they mean they're not Democrat or Republican, but they are opposed to nationalism and nationhood and very much in favor of internationalism. See, so they're partisan in a different way, but they don't state that openly. It's kind of like what I was saying about big news a few minutes ago. But anyway, keeping all that in mind, the uh, executive summary is basically saying, while Americans are far removed from the physical struggle on the ground regarding uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, they have felt the reverberations of the war in their own lives through increased food prices, supply chain disruptions, and higher costs at the gas pump. And uh, it goes on to say that the war in Ukraine has also affected Americans' view of the world today. Despite the economic pinch that Americans have endured during this crisis, Americans think helping Ukraine in its struggle against Russia is worth the sacrifice. And they're saying Americans will therefore, according to their survey, put up with higher food prices, put up with fuel uh, price hikes or shortages. It could be food shortages too. So Americans supposedly are so devoted to Ukraine's betterment that they'll put up with all these things. Of course, the U.S., like the U.K. and many other places, we need to reduce our dependency on places like Ukraine and other foreign food and energy sources. The, the U.K. needs to be more self-sufficient in that regard. America needs to be more self-sufficient in that regard. And these kind of things never come up. The surveys like this presuppose that we should maintain our dependency on these foreign sources, including Ukraine itself. And then it's only a matter of how much are we willing to put up with in terms of shortages, rather than solving the shortages problem by becoming less dependent on Ukraine and elsewhere to begin with. You see how they weave these false premises in here. And um, so that's, that's the first part of this. And uh, it's also interesting to add, while we're on this part of the Chicago Council survey, that over the years of polling by the Chicago Council, majorities support the accession of new NATO members, Sweden, 76%, and Finland, 76% of those surveyed. Americans support them joining NATO. And also, according to this survey, 73% of those surveyed uh, support the accession of Ukraine into NATO. So they seem to be massaging this to, to lay more of, a, uh, more of a groundwork for justifying getting Ukraine into NATO. Uh, that, that would clearly fit with the long-term CFR style agenda over the last century. Right, Mark, and, and this next one, global democracy, nice but not necessary. Uh, this is a pretty interesting survey. Americans recognize that it's in the U.S. interest for other countries to respect underlying principles of human rights and peaceful international relations. Majority of Americans agree that governments that oppress their people at home are more likely to be aggressive abroad. Uh, as I read that sentence, I think of UK and how true it is. But uh, is this also, is this particular 
uh, graph a, a result of the Chicago Council, or has this come from, from another source? Uh, the, these are all from the Chicago Council survey. And the bigger point to make here, Brian, is that what this survey is showing is that although it's a little bit subtle, I'm very familiar with these surveys. I've been reporting on them since 2016 when um, Rasmussen, the former um, uh, head of NATO, spoke to the Chicago Council and I covered it in person. That was October of, of uh, 2016. And over time, uh, ever since 1974 when this survey actually started, but even since 2016 when I started covering it in earnest along with the Global Cities Movement, the council has been hoping to see when they take the pulse of Americans that they survey, they're hoping to see Americans becoming more enchanted with foreign adventurism, globalism, um, even in the realm of COVID in more recent years. But that's not what they're seeing. Um, not only does it say global, global democracy, nice but not, not necessary, it goes on to say that despite Americans' pro-democracy inclinations, and this is some text I sent you, I believe, Despite these pro-democracy inclinations, only 46% of Americans believe the decline of democracy around the world poses a critical threat to the US, et cetera, et cetera. Moreover, only 15% say protecting democratic values and ideals in the world should be the top priority when crafting US foreign policy compared to ensuring the physical defense of the United States. So Americans are more interested, yeah, there it is, uh, I can read it again if you'd like. No, that's fine. I think I think we, we got that out, uh, Mark. Okay. Uh, but what that's basically saying, although it's not a profound change, is that Americans want to protect America proper, physically protect their own country, but they're not ready, like the CFR has been pushing for a century, they're not ready to spend our uh, the blood of our children and our tax dollars on protecting democratic values and ideals in the world because it's not just protecting, uh, like the American Enterprise Institute and other neocon think tanks are always pushing, they're not just protecting democracy, they want to uh, promote democracy around the world through soft power and hard power, and Americans don't have the stomach for that anymore, and that's good news. Okay, and are you ending on a good, a good note here? We've got most Americans no longer view COVID-19 as a critical threat. Yeah, this is more good news. Um, again, it's not a dramatic change, but it's a very notable one. Um, and I don't think the the council wanted to see this uh, because just last year um, and the year before, 2020 and 2021, they kept having their Global Cities Forum, but they made it all virtual like many organizations did. And they were pushing uh, against vaccine nationalism. Americans would have to spend, you know, just un ungodly amounts of money and be uh, open totally to the idea that our vaccines that we produce here, which are really just injections, they're not vaccines in the traditional sense, as I always say, but the ones we produce here should be exported to the world. We should be in a big way, largely responsible for getting the world vaccinated. And that's what the Chicago Council on Global Affairs was pushing in 20 and 21. But here in 2022, according to the same council's own survey, only a third of Americans consider the COVID-19 pandemic to be a critical threat. And around half of, of Americans would prefer the country play a supporting role 
in delivering vaccines uh, uh, to those countries in need, 51% of those surveyed. But that supporting role is not an active role. So in other words, they found that Americans are lukewarm about full-blown vaccine globalism, internationalism, and they don't mind America playing a supportive role to some extent, but they're lukewarm on the full-blown thing. They, they'd rather that America played a less dominant role and things like that. Uh, the way they describe it, uh, the, the public wants the United States to play a supporting rather than a leading role in global vaccine aid, quote unquote. So again, Americans are getting, uh, as I say, more lukewarm about all this uh, globalization along the lines of foreign policy toward Ukraine or along the lines of COVID. And that's despite all the propaganda from the Chicago Council and its uh, sibling organizations. So in other words, the propaganda from these organizations is not totally working. Yeah. And right. so that's, um, there's something to be said for that. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, right, uh, let's move on to this then. Now, the public order bill we've been talking about recently, uh, we're going to continue to talk about it. And of course, the public order bill is a piece of legislation which will prevent the sort of uh, disgraceful activities that we've seen uh, in uh, from, uh, what do we call them, groups like Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Wolves and so on, who just seem to be coming along at exactly the right moment to generate some headlines in order to produce uh, some public support for the public order bill. Uh, and the question, David, is who's behind Extinction Rebellion? And the answer, it transpires, amongst other people, uh, is uh, Getty Oil Fortune heiress. Um, she helped fund the climate activists who have targeted artworks, museums, and indeed public transport. Uh, this is Aileen Getty, granddaughter of John Paul Getty, and uh, she's uh, founded the not-for-profit Climate Emergency Fund in 2019 and reportedly donated a million pounds of her own money to the cause. Um, we see here also the Telegraph reporting this. Um, the Climate Emergency Fund has handed out more than $4 million to activists, including Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. So these people are actually being paid to um, conduct their stunts. Um, uh, so Ms. Getty, 65, granddaughter of uh, John Paul Getty, is a founding member. Um, she's given a million of her own money, and the, the fund has, has put out more than $4 million in total. And just before we leave this, The Guardian reports... Uh, a very sympathetic piece, you know, very, the Guardian's very much behind this, Damien Gale and the Gar Guardian here, very much behind the activists. It was terrifying. Stop oil activists on the new battle against fossil fuel. But they then say, uh, an end to new oil and gas projects remains a key demand, but protesters now want taxes on big polluters and basic energy for all. Oh, so we're going to have um, state funding of energy companies. I just wonder whether there might be a slight um, benefit to Ms. Getty uh, under those circumstances. What do you think? Well, of course, we should know, but we don't know necessarily because people like Ms. Getty are not transparent when they do what they're doing. But I take, I take your point. Well, sticking with uh, legislation and so on, uh, there's a bill getting its second reading tomorrow uh, in Parliament. It's the retained EU brackets revocation and reform bill. Uh, and it was put into the parliament by Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, and many people talking about this, uh, but in terms of chaos and so on, 
And I just want to, I just want to just get some thoughts from uh, David and Brian in particular about uh, the Tory party and what they might be doing here. So, so let's just have a look at what we're talking about here. If we put this back on screen for a second, uh, the gov sorry, the government provides this very nice uh, infographic from the cabinet office about retained EU law. So this is the amount of law that as a result of the Brexit uh, agreement uh, is still on the UK statute books. Um, so DEFRA, obviously the biggest uh, government department, the, the largest number of retained uh, legislation from the EU on the UK statute books and so on. We've got HMRC and others on there. Now, uh, here's, here's the point. Uh, in the House of Commons Library research briefing on this, uh, legislation, it says this, uh, it's difficult to assess the impact this bill will have on the substantive law of the UK if it's enacted and nothing is done legislatively, legislatively thereafter, vast uh, reams of retained legislation would fall away at the end of 2023. This would create precisely the gaps in domestic law uh, that the EU Withdrawal Act 2018 was designed to avoid. This is a very unlikely outcome, however, now I'm going to suggest there's not a very unlikely outcome at all. It's a very likely outcome, bearing in mind the absolute uh, clown show that we have uh, running this country at the moment. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Tory or a Labour Party MP, you're a clown as far as I'm concerned at this point in time, because there's nothing credible coming out of the mouths of any of them. Um, so the key point here is, David, that uh, this piece of legislation is designed to uh, repeal or change um, something like 1,700 uh, individual acts of parliament uh, that are retained following um, us leaving the European Union. And my question is, is it possible, bearing in mind the absolute chaos that we have in government at the moment, is it possible that the government is going to be able to, to replace that legislation with British legislation by the end of 2023, should this bill pass? Because that's the deadline that it, it chooses to impose on the country. Uh, and therefore, the only outcome of this can be more chaos. And in fact, that just before I get your comments, I'll just bring uh, Jonathan Jones on screen. He's the former uh, Her Majesty's Procurator General and uh, uh, he therefore in charge of legal matters with respect to the government. And he said, as far as I can see, there's no indication of which areas the government is thinking of retaining and which it's getting rid of. There's no certainty about what laws we will have and what will replace them. Uh, this is nothing to do with Brexit. We have left. It creates great uncertainty within a very tight and completely self-imposed timescale. And I'm sorry to do it, but she made a good point to bring Stella Creasy on screen. She said it abolishes overnight thousands of laws from those covering people's pension protections, compensation rights if your luggage is lost or tra travel delayed, to those tackling insider trading, to maternity rights, as well as vital protections of our environment and water quality with no clarity as to what, if anything, will replace them. And so we will have this situation where we've seen some hints that this government is effectively taking this country apart piece by piece. But this is another example of it, in my opinion. I'm interested to know what your thoughts are. Well, I mean, I, generally speaking, I'm, I'm all for repealing laws and having less state and less government. But um, to do so in a kind of arbitrary, random way, where we take out a, a, a selection of pieces of the vast amount uh, of existing law that governs and sometimes oppresses us, and just hope that hope that the rest hangs together. 
does seem to be fanciful. Um, it, it, it would either cause chaos or it would cause the decision to reinstate all the EU law, one or the other, I would have thought. Well, I think my take on it, David, is, of course, as the uh, European project came into force by stealth, it was accompanied uh, by thousands and thousands of individual pieces of legislation um, so that virtually everything we touched in our normal day lives suddenly became legislated instead of being something that was conducted on a common sense basis. So we saw the country drowning in EU legislation. And I would have thought the, uh, this was an ideal opportunity for the country just to pause for a short period of time and start to remove legislation and remove, remove the burden on people and allow people to go back to running their lives on what was common sense than using existing laws. Um, I, I would agree with that uh, if, if we had a government that was going to do it in an organised <laughs> well, way. And this is, this is the point, really. Uh, well, uh, the first thing we've got to do is, is produce some politicians who've got common sense and don't have allegiance to their individual parties. So if I had my way, the first thing we should do is ban political parties. That would be the start. David, you're wincing slightly. Well, no, the, the point you're making there is a very good one, right? But, but the point you're making is based on a principle, right? And party or no party, there, there is no UK politician making that principled stand that we should have much less legislation, much less law governing us, and much more handed over to the individual people to sort out for themselves. Um, with an underpinning of common law to, to provide the necessary protection. That point isn't being made, apart from by you, yeah. um, and needs to be made because you cannot roll back the state without first making the case as to why you should do so. Yeah, agree, agree. Thank you for that. Well, one area where we appear to be going to get more legislation is um, child protection, or maybe not. Uh, but let's start with a good day to bury bad news. And of course, most people completely missed the significance of Thursday last week because ICSA produced its final report on child abuse in UK. And uh, this is the headline from their web page, the report of the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse uh, released 20th October. Well, of course, this was an absolutely tremendous day to bury bad news because, in fact, over a, a number of days, the country had been drowning in all matters to do with leadership change of the prime minister and uh, the top of the Tory party. So nobody was interested in uh, anything to do with uh, child sexual abuse at all. And what happened was this went up on the BBC and other websites for a brief part of that particular day. And then already this key inquiry, albeit with many weaknesses, has disappeared into the long grass. But let's just take a little bit out of uh, the executive summary. It's a big document. It's going to take UK column a while to get into the depths of it. Uh, but it says that this is the final statutory report published by the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse. Uh, in accordance with the terms of reference, it set out the main findings about the extent to which state and non-state institutions failed in their duty of care to protect children from sexual abuse and exploitation, and it makes recommendations for reform. 
Now, what uh, you get very quickly from this particular text is it identifies 13 million children in England, Wales, and it says one in six girls and one in 20 boys will experience abuse before the age of 16. So quite clearly, the problem in the UK is immense, um, but it was so unimportant that it was released to be buried under the weight of Liz Truss. Um, common themes amongst institutions, uh, well worth uh, reading, the pain and suffering uh, caused to victims and survivors often affected many aspects of their lives. And it goes on to say that the uh, deviousness and cruelty of perpetrators was, quote, limitless. And uh, that's, that about sums it up. Uh, if we do a little bit more here, um, it says the protection of personal and institutional reputations above the protection of children uh, was a frequent institutional reaction. And of course, that was a reaction across all institutions, be it the care system themselves or indeed government. But of course, this has been a very carefully written report uh, that hasn't gone too heavy on government. But it did say that problems in the criminal justice system included investigative and prosecutorial failures. Uh, so there are hints as to what was going on. We haven't read the full report yet, so we've got to be a little bit careful. But I'm going to say in the executive summary, you get a feeling of shifting blame, particularly onto the Catholic and the Church of England. Uh, and the protection of people in high establishment positions, but maybe I'm biased. Uh, it goes on to talk about the experiences of children who were abused outside the UK, uh, outside the UK. and it points out that this started with the child migration programmes, which uh, started in, in earnest immediately after the Second World War, supported by the major charities, so-called child protection charities, uh, but if we look into this, we've got to see the real picture that the government was itself facilitating the abuse of children. Well, we will do more on this particular report because there's a lot more to talk about. But I just wanted to focus today on the utter disgrace that is the BBC, because, of course, not only did the BBC bury this story as well, it also put out this interesting little audio under stories of our times. And uh, the host of this uh, particular programme was David Aranovich. And the headline for the piece was 10 years ago, the Jimmy Savile affair shot the nation, sparking a moral panic about child abuse and institutional cover-ups. In response, the government launched a national inquiry in 2014. This week, after eight years and over 180 million spent, the independent inquiry on child sexual abuse will release its final report. Notice the future tense will release because this BBC piece was done in preparation of the release of the report. And the uh, particular edition was uh, with uh, Sean O'Neill, the chief reporter from The Times, and uh, this is part of his quote during the piece. He, he gets on to the ICSA inquiry itself. He said he's been totting it up. ICSA cost 180 million at least. And then he goes on to compare it with other inquiries uh, where they end up mocking the Edinburgh tram inquiry because it still hasn't produced a report and it's cost 13 million quid. And there's general uh, bonhomie and laughter 
in what is a piece about the abuse of children. Uh, well, this is Sean O'Neill himself. He's chief reporter of the Times, working on investigations and major stories. He was apparently awarded Scoop of the Year and News Reporter of the Year uh, at the 2019 British Press Awards after exposing the scandal of, quote, sexual misconduct by Oxfam aid workers in Haiti. I thought it was a bit of a shame that he didn't seem to get that award for exposing the abuse of children in the UK, but obviously Haiti was uh, his uh, focus. Let's listen to the first of a couple of clips from this audio programme to get a feel for how the BBC, nay the Times, decided to approach their look at the inquiry. The following podcast has been acquired by the BBC as part of a trial. It is not complied by BBC editorial standards, but covered by Section 2 of the Ofcom Broadcasting Code. Before we begin, this episode contains reference to child sexual abuse from the very start. This time, ten years ago, one story above all appalled the country. The police currently have eight formal allegations against Sir Jimmy Savile, two of rape and six of indecent assault. But they say information is coming in all the time. The Savile affair was a symbol of how some of our best-known institutions had, over the years, turned a blind eye to, or even worse, covered up abuse. The culture of the BBC certainly enabled both Savile and Stuart Hall to go undetected for decades. At Stoke Mandeville and Leeds General, Jimmy Savile was given a bedroom and an office. At Broadmoor, Britain's high security psychiatric hospital, he got his own set of keys. Under pressure to act, the authorities pursued a string of accusations against celebrities accused of child sexual abuse. Some were hard to credit, but true. From Rolf Harris, there were no words, no reaction, and no apology. As Gary Glitter arrived for sentencing today, gone were both the glamour and the rock. And soon the accusations began to be made against people who were or had been at the very heart of power. We know that some of the abusers are alleged to be senior military personnel, also law enforcement people, senior people and senior politicians. But by now this outrage was morphing into a moral panic fueled by a media feeding frenzy which was itself fed by conspiracy theories. Throwing into doubt virtually every institution in the country and the kind of almost air of hysteria now. Of course they should have called me and I would have told them exactly what they learned later on, that it was complete rubbish. Out of that crucible of genuine alarm and sometimes false accusation grew a national inquiry which on Thursday, eight years and over £180 million later, will publish its final report. So David, uh, come over to you uh, very quickly before we move on with another little bit of the clip. But the BBC sets the scene by mentioning itself in relation to child abuse fleetingly. And then it introduces the words of moral panic, uh, conspiracy, hysteria and rubbish. Yes, uh, and, and essentially uh, acquits itself in the process. 
I see that David Aronovich is uh, tweeting today, the child abuse inquiry won't say the thing that's true, that the great Westminster pedo scandal was a classic moral panic led by liars and fantasists. He's writing this in the Times. So he's absolutely clear that this, is, this did not happen. This is a narrative that's coming out, despite the truly horrendous and vast amounts of information provided to the ICSA inquiry. Uh, well, I, that's exactly how I see it, David. Now, I have edited some little bits of this clip to bring things together, make that very clear, encourage people to go and listen to the full clip. Let's have a listen to this second little section to get a feel for what's happening. And the problem with Carl Beach's story was that it was a complete lie from start to finish. He had fabricated this story and the investigation found nothing to corroborate anything Beach had said. It was then turned into an investigation into Carl Beach himself and his perversion of the course of justice, which uncovered the fact that he'd uh, had a lot of child abuse images on his computer. And Beach, in the end, went on trial, was jailed, and Operation Midland collapsed. And if you were sitting in the inquiry room, as I was sometimes, you were thinking, how does this inquiry conduct itself now when the catalyst for setting it up is proven to be a lie? And yet, yet it did, and it continued. Um, did Dame Lowell Goddard last very long? No, around the time the police investigation was collapsing, Lowell Goddard's credibility was collapsing as well. There was a quite notorious hearing where she asked for help with the local law, and there was this kind of disbelief that she hadn't got her head around basics of the legal process, That and she was the chair of the inquiry. And then we revealed in the Times that she'd spent most of the previous year not in London, but back home in New Zealand. And then behind the scenes, while that was being exposed, her panel of experts that she was working with were going to the Home Office saying they had real concerns about her ability to run the inquiry. And very suddenly, in the middle of 2016, she resigned and they were without a chair once again. Right, so who did they get? Coming up, Ixa is under new management and not even the royal family or the Vatican will escape its scrutiny. That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Kat Lay, health editor at The Times. Our health coverage spans everything from how the way we live can raise or lower our risk of diseases, to advances in medical treatment, to the problems facing the NHS and their potential solutions. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. So, David, this, this is a piece on child abuse, and I hope the audience picked up the no, snickering no, and the no, laughter it, because it, this, is, this is a feature of this particular piece, but it's also uh, let's make money for the Times and put an advert in the middle of it. This is an utter disgrace. I, I, words are you, fail are you me. Sure it was about, are, you, are you sure it was about child abuse, Brian? Because it uh, sounded like a sitcom to me. It's, it's not about child abuse, it's about mocking the inquiry and everything to do with the inquiry and making money in adverts for the Times. And notice the disclaimer at the beginning of the piece, which said, no, 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 this hasn't been produced by the BBC. It's part of an experiment. Uh, I, I think this piece is so disgraceful. I've got one more short clip 
but I'm going to encourage people to listen to the full piece. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a lot of people complaining about the standard of this particular program to the BBC? Let's just have a listen of the, the last part, part three. It was Ball who was the evil character in this story. I think because he was a, a, an establishment figure and he had friends in high places, he manipulated those people to try and defend himself. Now, while the inquiry knocked the idea of a, a Westminster paedophile ring on the head, that doesn't mean that it didn't point to some instances of politicians being involved. There was an investigation strand into Westminster and it looked at a number of quite extraordinary cases, including Sir Peter Heyman, a former spy chief, who had been caught with obscene material and managed to escape any serious punishment. But uh, I was really struck by the case of Peter Morrison. Peter Morrison was a Conservative MP, a drunk, and he's dead now, and was known by the whips in his own party to have, as they put it in one quote, a penchant for small boys. MI5 were aware of this. They were aware that when Morrison was a minister and might be going overseas, that he might be vulnerable to blackmail, particularly by the KGB in, in, in the 1980s. And they, MI5 wrote memos warning Thatcher about Sir Peter Morrison's interest in children. Thatcher didn't want to know. She later promoted Morrison to be her PPS and an MI5 witness told the inquiry, if the Prime Minister knew of the allegations, was not particularly on the face of it concerned about them, if this is a true account of the situation, then there would be little point in MI5 investigating them further. So Morrison uh, was let off the hook and never really pursued. In terms of its recommendations in previous bits of the report, are any of them of significance? I spoke to someone the other day who was involved in the very first investigation, which was the forced child migration after the Second World War, where children of single mothers and children from poor families were swept up and sent off to farm schools in Australia and schools in Canada. And many of them suffered appalling physical and sexual abuse. Um, so, David, just to bounce this, this off you, I, I listened at the start to them mocking the idea of a Westminster-based paedophile ring, and yet in the part we've just heard, what they're effectively is describing a network that was protect, protecting people who were abusing children. It, it also included the security services. Apparently, this is all fantasy, but they are describing it. Yes, and they're picking one or two names, and we know there are many, many more that have been exposed and, and after their death, uh, and uh, against, against whom there are huge, huge volumes of evidence, including, of course, Ted Heath, former Prime Minister. Indeed, and I'll, I'll just leave our viewers with this short video clip, which, of course, is the BBC with an interview of one of Heath's whips, Tim Fortescue, consider what this man says in a very short clip against the laughter and frivolity of Ivanovich in that uh, 
disgraceful interview with Neil from the Times. Let's listen to what the BBC reported several years ago. Anyone with any sense who was in trouble would come to the witness and, and tell them the truth. They'd say, no, this, I'm in a jam. Can you help? It might be debt. It might be um, a scandal involving small boys or any kind of scandal which um, a member seemed likely to be mixed up in. They'd come and ask if we could help. And if we could, we did. And we would do everything we can because we would store up brownie points. If I mean that sounds a pretty, pretty nasty reason, but it's one of the reasons. Is if we can get a chap out of trouble, then he'll, he'll do as we ask for ever more. Well, that says it all. That's the situation. We will have a look at the depth of the ICSA inquiry, but of course we can also say to the audience with confidence that not only were witnesses refused the opportunity to speak at the ICSA inquirer, but evidence from qualified professionals, including police, was withheld and or heavily redacted to make sure the real truth of what was happening with the child abuse did not reach public ears. Uh, so there's plenty to criticise the ICSA inquiry about, but it's not a laughing matter. It's not a laughing matter, no. Um, okay, David, let's uh, finish off then with, with uh, well, a building at risk. Yeah, building at risk uh, for Nethy House. Uh, this is in beautiful Glen Isla near Aylith um, in the Angus Glens. And you see it's a very large, uh, impressive, quite austere house. Uh, and the background of this is it was built as a holiday retreat in a private home. And it was then gifted by the owner, the Coates family of uh, uh, Paisley Textile fame, uh, to Glasgow Council so that uh, it could be a holiday residence for the children, uh, for, for girls who uh, came from poor families and families where they needed a bit of respite and a bit of a break uh, or where the girls themselves were ill and needing to get out of the uh, smoke of uh, industrial Glasgow to somewhere uh, more conducive to uh, recover. A very noble uh, idea, and unfortunately, like so many of these, by the time you got to the 60s and 70s, it was something else entirely. So here we see the Daily Record uh, for Nethy House. Abuse survivors call for independent inquiry. We're still begging for inquiries into these things. Into Scott's all-girls school, House of Horrors. 200 victims, so far, by the way, 200 victims have claimed they suffered mental, physical and sexual abuse at the hands of staff between 1960s and 1980s. Um, they formed a Fornethi survivors group and they've come forward to say they were beaten, humiliated, force-fed, sexually assaulted at the hands of staff during their terms, their, their terms at the converted mansion. Many of the victims uh, attended the school in their primary years and have been left with lifelong physical and mental health issues. Now, this... Um, this particular building, um, uh, so because it was a short-term um, holiday uh, periods that the girls were going in for, it was it was seeing something like seven hundred girls a year. So uh, and it was going for for a couple of decades. So we've got two hundred victims so far. Uh, who knows how many there are? Now they are get, they are standing together and they are providing. Um, support for one another and getting their message out. Here we see the Glasgow Times reporting on a demonstration they held in George Square in Glasgow, um, calling for justice for all Abernethy abuse survivors. Uh, 
uh, and the Times reports Fonetti House, um, sorry, Fonetti House uh, survivors take to Glasgow's George Square and calls for justice. Uh, a woman said, it's very emotional, but it's very healing because as a child you were silenced and we've all got a little girl inside of us that suffered and was silenced. Meeting these women today allows us to be heard and that validates that the traumas we've suffered were real and that we're no longer alone. We're now being heard, we are together and nobody can silence us. Well, let's hope that's the case. Exa and the, other, and the Scottish equivalent might suggest otherwise. The Courier here reports uh, the first civil case lodged by one of the, the victims here. A woman who claims she was abused while attending a residential school in rural Angus has lodged a civil court case to seek justice for the trauma she says she suffered. Uh, this is the first of the 200 alleged victims and is being treated as a test case. Now, this was raised in the Scottish Parliament uh, by Colin Smith, Labour MSP, who wrote, my constituent, constituent Marion Reid, has come to Parliament today along with other survivors of Fornethy House Residential School to highlight the plight. So far, 200 brave women have come forward. I suspect that this is the tip of the iceberg. I share the traumatic, awful experience of physical, mental and sexual abuse at the hands of staff from Fornethy in the 1960s, where young, vulnerable children were sent supposedly to help them recover from illness. Understandably, uh, those women feel that no one is listening to them. The Deputy First Minister has said he will meet them. Can I ask him to ensure that the meeting takes place urgently? More importantly, will he ensure that he and the government listen to these women and that no stone is left unturned to get answers for them and that the perpetrators are brought to justice? Deputy First Minister, of course, is John Swinney, who we know well. John Swinney was the man who single-handedly uh, forced the head of the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry, uh, Susan O'Brien QC, out of her post, uh, and uh, she cited very clearly uh, political pressure from John Swinney as the reason she had to leave. So that John Swinney replied, there are a couple of different issues in that question. Mr. Smith, uh, Smith's last point uh, uh, was uh, whether every effort could be made to ensure the perpetrators of abuse are brought to justice. Properly, this is a matter for Police Scotland and the Crown. Uh, it's not a matter, it's a process that's independent of government. Oh, yes. The substance of the issue around Fonethi is very sensitive. I've agreed to meet with a group of survivors, I think, in response to a parliamentary question from Monica Lennon. I will do that as soon as possible. I applaud the courage of individuals who have come forward. And I know that the concern is the redress arrangements that the parliament has put in place uh, do not automatically include individuals who were in Fonethi for a short period of time because it's primarily focused on individuals who were abused during long-term care placements to Mr Smith. And his constituent, I say there's obvious scope for individuals to apply for redress, Scotland, for redress payment, and each individual circumstance will be individually addressed and assessed. It is not the case that there's a prohibition on applications from Fonethi survivors, is that each case will be addressed individually on its merits. Again, I will happily see the group and will do so as soon as I possibly can. Now, I understand that that meeting has now taken place and that the group are, shall we say, unimpressed with the results, but I'll try and get more on that for another news. Uh, I would simply point out to anyone who's in the Fornethi uh, survivor group that uh, they should have a look at a UK column article um, called Corrupt Scotland, John Swinney and the Crown Office which details one of uh, Mr Swinney's particular exploits, which was of concern to us in terms of corruption of uh, high government positions. 
and we concluded that we had four questions that were unanswered at that point. They are unanswered still. Uh, the questions were, does Frank Mulholland, now Judge Lord Mulholland, make a habit of interfering with court cases and tampering with witness lists? We still don't know. Does John Swinney, or for that matter Nicola Sturgeon, or any other Scottish Cabinet Minister, routinely use the Lord Advocate to influence the conduct of court cases, uh, which they feel to be inconvenient, bothersome, or personally threatening? We still don't know the answer to that either. Uh, we asked what are the relationships between the present and previous Lords Advocate and the Scottish National Party administration? How close is it? Is there any separation of powers at all? We still don't know. And finally, we asked just how corrupt is Scottish public life? We don't know that one either. OK, well, uh, David, we're absolutely out of time, but uh, you've got a quick video clip uh, to finish off with. Let's just uh, tell us what it's about. Yes, so this is um, some very beautiful people um, who are campaigning to bring to light the issues with vaccine injury. Uh, and they've been going around Scotland with uh, an installation which they've set up in several towns, uh, highlighting the people who have been killed. Uh, this one's from Paisley on a very rainy day, and you'll see the amount of attention uh, that they were getting and uh, the, the amount of interest that people were showing um, in, in this particular installation. And also you'll see just how young, fit and healthy uh, so many of the victims of, uh, of the vaccine were. It's a very moving um, uh, piece of work and personally I would thank them for all of their efforts to bring this to the public attention. Very poignant, uh, David, and it is good to see that people are taking simple but very powerful steps to get this message across. I know that the week just gone, uh, there were vaccine injured 
people meeting with MPs in Westminster. I understand that events went with mixed results, but we'll do our best to report on that as well. Um, but we are seeing now people standing up to uh, get the message across and be counted. Yes, uh, that's uh, that, that organisation is called Truth Brigade. Please follow them on Twitter and give them any support you possibly can. Uh, they're doing excellent work. Um, and uh, I've seen at least some correspondence from UK column viewers on these uh, events in Parliament where parliamentarians are refusing to meet um, uh, the uh, people alerting them to the uh, seriousness of vaccine injury uh, and citing the, the established fact in their view uh, that uh, the yellow card system vastly overestimates the number of deaths and really there's no problem at all. A completely unscientific, baseless view that um, merely allows them to turn away from those who they have harmed. Yeah. David, thank you very much. We'll end on that note. Big thank you to all of the UK column, column viewers and listeners. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your support. We can only do what we do. With that, with that support. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.